so it's a lot like sales. So sales, you got to make a lot of phone calls. You got to look at a lot of junk before you get a good sale, right? And so M&A is a lot like that. Welcome to the Fueling Deals Podcast, the podcast that teaches how to accelerate your business growth through all types of deals. It's time to fuel up. So buckle in with your host, Corey Kupfer. There are only two ways to grow your business, organically through sales and marketing and providing great products and services, and inorganically through deals. Too many companies focus only on the first way, organic growth. Welcome to the podcast, which will help accelerate your business growth inorganically. My guests are a huge variety of deal makers and experts on all types of deals who have had personal experience that can help you grow, get clear, learn best practices, and avoid mistakes. We discuss everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do without significant capital. My guest today is John Bly. John is the founder and CEO of LBA Haynes Strand PLLC, a full-service accounting firm that has seen rapid growth through a robust merger and acquisition strategy. Since 2004, John has completed 11 CPA firm acquisitions, and on a personal side, four fitness franchise acquisitions. He also co-founded LBA Haynes Strand Capital Advisors, LLC, which provides advisory services to clients and focuses on the capital needs of small to mid-sized companies. John Bly is a dynamic business consulting speaker, traveling the world, speaking on M&A, and is the author of Cracking the Code, an entrepreneur's guide to growing your business through mergers and acquisitions for pennies on the dollar. So John Bly, I have no idea why I have you on this deals podcast, because clearly, you know, you only dabble in, in M&A, huh? <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me, Corey. I'm looking forward to uh, hopefully sharing a little insight and having some fun today. Well, I, I got to tell you something, folks. I, I, I've no, had the pleasure to know, to know uh, John for uh, about a decade now. Uh, we got to know each other through Entrepreneurs Organization. Uh, he's a past president of, of an EO chapter. I'm a past president of EO chapter. John went on to play some significant regional roles and even be on the global board of directors. And, um, and when John, uh, when I was writing my book, Authentic Negotiating, I, I called upon John because I ended up uh, going with the same publisher he went with, and he was super helpful for me there. And, you know, all kidding aside, I mean, this guy knows deals. And not only as a, an advisor, uh, you know, as an accountant and as, uh, you know, with his, with his um, investment banking firm, but as a principal, as you, could, as you heard in the introduction. So, John, I'm, I'm real excited to talk about all of that. But before we go there, I want to take you back. When you were a little kid growing up, what did you want to be? Was, was it always an accountant and deal maker? My guess is maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> you know, when I was a little kid, I was about 11 or 12, um, and I wanted to be an accountant. I certainly didn't at that time see the deal making side of it, that's for sure. But I did want to be an accountant. My father was a CPA or is a CPA, just inactive. And my cousin is a principal at ENY, Ernst & Young, one of the big four. And so, so they're both obviously older than I am and, and watching them go through the profession. I really thought it was interesting, especially I got started doing debits and credits at a young age to having a paper route. And that really turned me on to accounting. I love it. So, so um, I don't know if the paper route's going to be your answer, but uh, my second question that I always ask is, uh, what, is your, what was your first real business, however you define that? Yeah, that's a good question. The paper route um, might, might qualify as that because in those days, you had to pay the paper whether you collect it or not. So you had to, you had to actually do the billing. You had to go collect the money 
And every week, the paper required you pay them no matter whether you were paid or not. And so you were really a self-employed uh, contractor, if you will. And, um, and, and ironically, I started out with 40, 40 papers, 40 houses, and I grew it to uh, about 500 houses. And I had that for about seven years. Oh, that's great. And listen, for, you know, for the listeners out there, let's just say John and I are of an age where um, yeah, there wasn't something called the internet and online billing where the, where the companies could uh, do this. <laughs> so, so they had to have the, you know, they had to have the little kids collecting the money. <laughs> that's right. That is absolutely correct. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So uh, just give us a couple of minutes. I mean, I know there's so much that, that you do and, uh, and we're going to delve into it, especially on the deal side, but just give us a couple of minutes on, you know, what, what the accounting firm does and what, you know, for clients and, and, and what your, uh, and what, um, you know, LBA Hayden's Strand Capital Advisors does as well. Sure. So on the accounting firm side of things, our core focus is the privately held small to mid-sized company. And for us, that, that typically means a two to $50 million company. We have lots of clients who are smaller and we have uh, clients that are larger than that. But when we look at like what our biggest differentiators are, uh, they're in that space. And the things that we do, of course, we do uh, business and individual tax as part of that. But we also do business valuation, exit strategy design. We do uh, outsourcing so we can be in a company's entire accounting function behind the scenes. So we go anywhere from bookkeeper to tax, to accounting manager, to controller, to CFO, we have all of those in house, and so we can play uh, that role for any one of our clients. And then we also do uh, audited financials and and advisory work, um, helping people you know increase their profitability through some business consulting and coaching. On the capital advisor side, we do only M and A and and debt work, and so we're looking at capital raise, debt refinance work. So people who have uh, you know, traditional bank lending, let's say, but are stuck, they need some growth capital, or they need a different banking financial institution to help them partner to grow. Uh, and then we do buy side and sell side uh, contingent fee work. So we are literally, you know, creating deals, sometimes we're representing buyers, and we create a market for them to go buy, uh, you know, something they're looking for. And other times we're helping a seller exit their, their business. That's great, John. So there are so many places we can go because you 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 know you have so much experience in this, and we could talk about how you value deals. You have experience not only as a principal but also on behalf of other people. So we talk about valuation, we talk about structure. But I want to go to a place that, to me, is the core of why I'm doing this podcast, which is you know my assertion that most businesses focus only on organic growth, and that there are all of these opportunities out there for inorganic growth that so many businesses don't take advantage of. So, you know, in, although there's been uh, a decent amount of deal work and consolidation and acquisitions in, in the, uh, in the accounting space, it's mainly been the big guys, right? You know, what used to be the big, what was eight and then it was like four, right? Um, you know, and quite, uh, you know, but a firm, you know, listen, your firm has grown, it's become substantial, but you know, when you started, you know, you were like a lot of other, you know, local successful, but you know, local accounting firms. And you went down a path that most accounting firms, not to mention other service providers, professional service firms, and either other types of companies don't do, which is you made a conscious decision to grow through acquisition. So what I want to talk about is less the deal structure at this point, but really what had you make that decision and what basically had you take a different path than what most others do and why don't others, you know, more other companies do this? Yeah, sure. So I, you know, I started my career at PricewaterhouseCoopers, which is a large uh, accounting firm, one of the big four that you mentioned a minute ago. And leaving there and starting from scratch seemed intimidating. And so 
I found out ironically in the back of, uh, again, almost pre-internet, although uh, it was pre-Google. It was, it was certainly the internet was long in existence. Uh, <laughs> it, it was pre-Google though. <laughs> there was a, uh, in the back of the journal of accountancy, our trade magazine for the profession was a listing for accounting firms. And I thought, oh my goodness, people sell accounting firms. That, that concept was sort of foreign to me. You know, I was in my early twenties and, uh, and at a big firm and, you know, at the big four, you didn't even know the other firm's names. So, uh, if they weren't the big four, they weren't anybody that was sort of the mentality. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so wanted to replace my current income and give myself, you know, some bankers, some attorneys, some advisors who already knew the firm, knew the clients that they could be referral sources and also, uh, you know, clients that were able to refer other future clients. And so started with two really small acquisitions, very, very small sole practitioner working out of their houses, you know, small practices, but it gave us a start. My wife and I started it together uh, nearly 15 and a half years ago. And what I would say is that it was definitely a strategy there for the next few years to try and get to a size as fast as possible where we didn't have to do everything, you know, uh, for the people listening, if you've ever been a small entrepreneur starting something, you have to answer the phone. You're doing customer service, service. You're doing back office support. You're doing uh, IT. You're doing, <laughs> you're doing <laughs> ordering the supplies from stables or wherever, right? Yes, yeah. everything. And so the, the, you know, from 2004 to the, you know, the end of 2006, it was really to get to a size as fast as possible um, that allowed us to just do the things we we're really good at, um, and and really deliver client service rather than having to do all of the other administrative tasks. And that was really the, the precipice for the starting of that acquisition run. So let me ask you, uh, on those, uh, that early acquisition or two, the first uh, one or two that you did, talk to me about those deals. So were those deals where, were those succession deals where you were taking over practice, somebody was phasing out? Were those deals where the people stayed on and you became partners? Or, you know, what, what were those first couple of deals like? Yeah, so in the first 24 months, we did uh, five deals. Um, and ironically, only one of the five was a succession deal, meaning they literally were going to retire. The other four were all career changes for them. They, they were sick of uh, running their own show in the public accounting space and went out to do something else. They either went to be a contract CFO or they went actually, ironically, into the M&A business and became you know, a business broker and investment banker. And so uh, that was really the interesting. None of them became partners at that time. Um, and they really, they really all just wanted to do something different or totally retire. So on those deals, did they, did they stay on for a period of time? Was there a consulting you know, arrangement for transition? How, how did you handle that part of it? Yeah, each one of them, each, the first five, each one of them, I will say, basically left on day one, although that's not 100% accurate. They, they had a 60-day, you know, 90-day consulting agreement where they stayed on to help with transition as needed. So they didn't have to come to the office from eight to five. I certainly didn't need them, you know, 40 hours a week, but, uh, you know, Hey, you got to come meet with the, you know, top 10 clients this week that I'm meeting with and make the introduction and, you know, hand over the, the relationship, if you will. And so that was really the precipice and the starting point for how we transitioned because none of them really wanted to stay in the business and they weren't going on to be competitors. They were doing something totally different. We didn't feel the need to uh, necessarily, you know, keep them around, but we did keep uh, in two of the deals, they had a significant amount of employees and, and we kept all the employees and that helped transition the business. Great. And, and, and it's interesting because I've known you for a while, but I don't know the answer to this. So I'm, uh, but I'm going to take a chance here. So 
uh, is my guess correct that, uh, you know, it wasn't like you had a huge chunk of money that sitting around that you just paid these guys up front for these deals? <laughs> that is very fair. I was, uh, I was about 25 when I started this run and uh, 25, 26. And I had no money, really. I mean, I, I don't come from a wealthy family and I didn't have, uh, you know, some big windfall. You know, I may have I may have started this whole thing with uh, fifty or seventy five thousand saved, so it was not a big number. It was a rounding error in the grand scheme of things. I did luck out, though. I will say, we did we did some owner financing for sure, where we paid them over a few years. We also did um, they were small enough that uh, we did some SBA loans um, for some of these as well, and and paid them, you know, anywhere from seventy to ninety percent upfront through bank funding. And the rest we paid out over a five-year payout. That's good. And the, one of the reasons I wanted to point that out is because you know it's easy. It would be easy for us to jump to the you know the larger deals that you've done later, and the, the deals you do on the um, on the investment banking side, and you know some of the deals you do uh, in supporting clients. Um, but you know, again, one of my premises here is that anybody can do deals, right? It's just you know. So I love the fact that we're talking to you, who is now you know phenomenally successful and has grown this thing. But, you know, you were 25 years old with with minimal capital and you did five deals in 24 months. So you know, <laughs> that, that's a real lesson for our Fueling Deals listeners out there. You know, uh, it, you know, if you think that you any misconception that you need capital, you're, you know, need more experience, you're too young or whatever. John Bly blows that out of the water. So you know, <laughs> take, take that as a lesson. You know, you know, Corey, it's interesting, I think, for your listeners, the. The lesson I learned and that I continue to help clients learn and that I'm sure you're going to continue to help your podcast listeners with is exactly that. It's almost so intimidating for people. They think if I got to buy a million dollar company, I need a million dollars in cash. And that's just not accurate. That's right. Especially in service businesses, right? I mean, listen, if if you buy in a manufacturing company that has hard assets of millions of dollars, you know, uh, and even in that case, there, there's sometimes other structures you can use, but there's more chance that there's more money that has to go up front. But in service-based deals, there's often so much more flexibility. I would totally agree. It is absolutely accurate. All right. So let's, let's keep moving. So, uh, you know, as you go forward, you start doing bigger deals, right? Uh, so talk about some of those and, and, and the differences that, you know, come up, whether it's in uh, just finding them, getting them done, or structuring them, uh, you know, with the larger deals you did later on versus the smaller deals you did in the beginning. Yeah, you know, as we went along, um, some of them ended up becoming partners, to your point earlier about, you know, it wasn't a succession plan for them, um, you know, over the last six or seven years. More of them have been about trying to, they've been trying to get to be part of a bigger organization. You know, we're now uh, 80 people across three offices, and there's, other firms who will contact us to say, you know, we'd like to offer more of the advisory. We're sick of running our own firm. Maybe we do a million dollars or $2 million or whatever the number might be. And, you know, we have 10 people or 15 people, but we're having trouble growing. We're having trouble layering three or four more people on top of that. It takes capital. It takes hiring. I just can't do it all. And so a lot of times these days, people are coming to us to say, you know, can we plug our, our clients and our systems into yours and and use all your support and use all your team and your partnership and and really be able to grow from there. So so before I have you give us some wisdom on you know the things you've done right in these deals uh talk to us about uh because listen I I anybody who does as many deals as you do uh, no matter how good you are at it 
has had some missteps, some things that have gone wrong, some things you didn't anticipate or mistakes or, let's, or lessons learned. So uh, I'd love for you to share a couple of those uh, before we tell people how to do it right. <laughs> Isn't that the truth, though? <laughs> and, and most times people learn from mistakes uh, maybe better than they can from what somebody's done right. Um, so one thing for sure, back in 2006, it was our fifth transaction in the, at the end of our 24-month period. And the first four were as perfect as they could be, meaning the seller was very amenable to everything. We got along really well. No client issues. You know, perfect. So, so, so you're, you're like, I, I know how to do this. I got this. This is easy, this is easy right? <laughs> yes, exactly right. <laughs> and, and we got to number five, and uh, it is definitely the, the most unique of all of the ones, and it changed the trajectory of the type of diligence we did. Before we did a lot of people diligence, we did a lot of uh, you know financial diligence, legal diligence, that sort of work. We never really checked the quality of the CPA, if that makes sense. So CPA is a CPA in my mind uh, back then, right? Again, young and dumb, and uh, and coming from the big four, I felt like every CPA was a CPA. And um, and what we found was we got in there, we closed in. 2006 and we, we took us about 30 days to get our arms around you know what we were doing and what the clients were like and you know have discussions with the seller etc and uh we found a backlog of stuff they had basically checked out the last seven months and we found a uh, an irs notice uh and that turned into two turned into three and eventually when we finished uncovering the pile there was 110 irs notices for clients that hadn't been resolved wow yeah. <laughs> and so that was really interesting. Uh, that was in December of 06. And our team worked around the clock because now the clients are in jeopardy. They think the ex-owner has solved this problem for them. They thought they were already taken care of. And the reality was they hadn't touched them. And so we had to dig deep and we had to work really hard in December, which is normally a slow month for the accounting profession. Uh, and we can't bill these clients for this work, right? I mean, this is stuff they already thought was solved. These are notices. We're coming in. We're the new people. Now, all of a sudden, we're going to bill them to solve these problems that were created. And, uh, and so it was, a, it was a lesson that continued, to, that continued uh, to be learned throughout that next busy season through about April of 2007, as we had a whole bunch of uh, transactions within our client base, let's just say that definitely caused significant red flags, things that are absolutely black and white uh, and against the IRS code time after time as we were looking through tax returns and advising clients on stuff that had been done in the past. And uh, so anyway, so it was definitely, um, definitely a learning experience to do diligence specific to, you know, are they really actually doing quality work or is this, or is this person, you know, just sort of checking the box, if you will. So, so let's tie that lesson into deal structure. So going back on that deal uh, uh, and also practicalities, right? So, you know, what that makes me think as a lawyer and what I talk to people about in terms of deal structure is, hey, um, yeah, you do your due diligence up front. But the truth is, no matter how much due diligence you do, you can reduce the chance of there being a problem, but you can never totally eliminate it. So then the question is, you know, not only I won't get into the legal details of what kind of representations and warranties you get and how you can breach them, but let's, you know, so there's that. But then there's also practical, like how much money do you have on the back end of the deal? And can that be, you know, and can that be uh, not paid if there's a breach, uh, you know, and what constitutes a breach? So uh, I'm curious, you know, you don't have to get into the nitty gritty, but, you know, was, one, was the deal structure of that deal set up in a way where you had some protections? And two, even if you did, 
uh, you know, practically did you pursue them? Because having the protections and making it worthwhile to go chase somebody are two different things. That is very well said, Corey. I would say we had about uh, 20% that was not supposed to be at risk, meaning there was about 20% we were going to pay this individual over a five-year period. It was really, a, a you know, for, for me and you deal junkies, it was owner financing. So it wasn't really a earn out or anything that was theoretically at risk. However, in this case, we were able to calculate in excess of that, of time that we had uh, could have built clients that had to eat and employee costs, et cetera. That was about 15% more than that number. So we're talking about a little over $100,000 uh, that shouldn't have been at risk, but was. Uh, because it was owner financing. And we wrote a letter um, with legal counsel and backed it up with like 250 pages of support for the time, for the IRS notices, et cetera, and two other CPAs, um, not our firm, who had written us letters, who had followed this person's work and said, I don't know if you know what you got yourselves into, but here's the issues we found on these returns. And so so we, uh, the seller, uh, agreed instantly. I mean, never, never questioned it. So it tells me that they really knew what they were, what they were doing, which was, uh, you know, really just going through the motions, if you will. So, so you basically didn't pay the back end payment, but it sounds like, and and this is, you know, usually the case, you know, you, you didn't pursue them for the additional money that you were out of pocket beyond the the hold back on the twenty percent. You know, the other fifteen percent. It sounds like, you know, you you, you let that go. Um, so you did take some somewhat of a hit, even with that uh, protection. Yeah, that's right. It just wasn't worth in our minds. It was it was probably going to be, you know, a a battle, if you will. And uh, and we felt like we had a good enough case to just wipe off the hundred grand. And they they did it, you know, really within a week of agreeing to it. So it wasn't we decided not to pursue the rest. So there's a few lessons in there. Feeling those podcast listeners, you know, one is you know to get as many of the right protections you can in the agreement. Two is uh, to have a some portion of the, of the purchase price held back uh, for a period of time, at least enough time for you to figure out what's really going on in that business. Because I don't care how much due diligence you do, this you know this stuff you may not see. Third is obviously to do great due diligence to and spend the time, whether that's uh, financial due diligence, legal due diligence, you know, this cultural due diligence, all that stuff. Uh, to reduce the chances of there being a problem. And then also know that there are going to be situations where you're just going to make a practical decision that's not going to be worth pursuing something and it's worth moving on with your life where, you know, if you don't have those everything in place, or even if you do, that, you know, there may be times when you're doing deals that you're going to take a little hit. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I think your comment there is is right on that you just sometimes you just got to move on. It's not worth the it's not worth the fight. You have to be able to continue to move forward. And in that case, we just felt like eh, it was time to move forward. The, the fight over over thirty grand, essentially, or forty grand, is uh, is what it was. It wasn't worth it, right? So now, obviously, the numbers are a lot bigger on the deals that you've done, uh, and some of them uh, you said you know are partnership deals, which raises a whole other set of uh, of, of potential issues, right? Uh, so, are there, is there any is there another example of uh, anything you know a big lesson learned uh, as the deals have grown and you've gone on? Yeah, so I, I would say. Um, we did a deal a handful of years ago um, that uh, really was an overnight deal. I mean, I don't mean that in some sort of funny way, but I mean, it like it, it happened really rapidly. And the one thing I stuck to my guns and so learning lesson is, you know, sort of go with your gut. And my gut told me there was something, you know, they thought they could um, 
they thought they were going to bring it was a, it was a merger and they thought that all their clients would follow it was a, it was a breaking up of a firm into a couple different pieces if you will and we were taking part of that firm and i felt like that probably wasn't accurate i felt like that they couldn't not all of the clients would transition so in that case they thought about 2.2 million would transition to our firm and so if you value that it's got a lot of value however i've we were taking the risk. It was not a true acquisition where we were acquiring the whole firm and all its clients and all its people. In that case, I would have felt much more comfortable with the risk we were taking. In this case, it was really a few of a couple of partners and a few employees and the other part of the firm was going a different direction. And, and so uh, I stuck to my guns. I will say this is a, a lesson I'll share that I'm very thankful that I stuck to my guns and said, you know, we're not, we're taking the risk here in a very different way than in a true acquisition. And so we're going to, we're not going to value those clients until 24 months after or whatever. And, and, you know, we're not, you know what, we're not even going to do that. We're, we're going to not value them at all. You're going to have to buy in as if you were buying into an equity partnership. And so um, at the time we had those, those folks buy in for, for true equity, even though they were coming with clients and uh, when all was said and done, about you know twelve months later, instead of two point two million, they had brought maybe five hundred and fifty thousand. Wow, that's yeah. You're not talking about two million instead of two point two. You know, <laughs> that's a big difference. Five hundred thousand versus two point two. Yes, and so I'm, so the lesson learned there is sometimes you just got to stick with your gut, and you know when the risk is different than a regular transaction, and this was definitely different. Yeah, I, I love that. You know, there there is a science and an art, and you know, to deal making. But there's also uh, there's something about you know a gut that definitely applies. Every great deal maker, um, you know, has 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 a good gut instincts on these things and learns to follow them. So that's that's great uh, advice. You know, the interesting thing is on those deals, I see that a lot because there's a lot of ways that you can deal with those kind of things, and it often comes up. You know, in any kind of a deal where you are expecting business to come over, clients to come over, revenue to come over, you know, it's why there's a concept of an earnout uh, piece in a lot of deals where, um, you know, it's uh, it's based upon essentially performance. Uh, earnouts are also often used when people think they're on a growth trajectory and they want to take a piece of that. But also, uh, you know, a lot of the deals I do in service industries, wealth management, for example, we do a lot, um, professional services. Uh, you know, there's some sort of retention uh, adjustment. I, either you don't value the clients until later, like you were first alluding you could have done, right? 12, 12 months later, 24 months later. Or, you know, you value them up front, pick a purchase price, give them, you know, whatever, 25, 30%, pick a number up front. The rest of the payments over time, but the purchase price is going to get adjusted based upon a retention adjustment on a look back, you know, a year or 18 months or something like that out. Yeah, those are very common. The retention adjustments definitely are very popular, especially in the service business. Um, and I can say in all the years we've really had deals in all the deals we've done, we've really only had the one time uh, that I described in 2006 that we were, where we had to go back to somebody. And that wasn't even because of a retention issue necessarily. It was right. more of a <laughs> bad practice. <laughs> right. So, uh, so in all the deals you've done, John, you know, uh, for yourself and, and not only in the accounting industry, right, because you, you, you advise and, uh, and support on deals in, in both your companies and in other industries. And, you know, you also have the personal experience uh, of doing, you know, deals in other industries. Um, you know, what, what are some of the big lessons that people who are uh, looking to do deals and, and really, you know, not going to be like, you're not a one-off guy, right? You had a, you had a vision and a program to grow through acquisition. So what are, what are some of the lessons if you want to do that as a company in whatever industry they may be in? 
Yep. So it's a lot like sales. So sales, you got to make a lot of phone calls. You got to look at a lot of junk before you get a good sale, right? And so M&A is a lot like that. So I always say to do the deals that we've done, we typically look at a 10 to 1 ratio. So we're looking at 10, 10 accounting firms to get serious about two or three to do one deal. And so it takes a lot, a lot of looking and you have to get focused on what you really want, the type you really want, what you're looking for. And is it the industry? Is it the location? Is it, you know, uh, for the type of clients they have, whatever the industry is, is the expertise. But you make sure that you're really focused and you immediately say no to all the ones that don't fit that. And for me, that's, that's the thing that saved me a lot of time over the years is I can look at something that comes across my desk because, you know, I've been doing it and because we're really focused on what our opportunities for growth are. And within 30 minutes to an hour max, I, I've said, no, we have no interest. And if I've said yes, then we really have serious interest and we're going to pursue, you know, getting a lot of information, meeting with the team, you know, discussing it in depth. Um, and it, it's really rare that I say yes and then find out two weeks later, you know, after looking at some stuff that we're not interested. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I find that, you know, too many people, especially in the one-off, uh, you know, sometimes they get too attached to a deal. And one of the things I always, you know, I say, I say in, my <laughs> talk, in my talks on negotiating in my book is, you know, there's there's only one thing worse than than getting than not getting a deal done, and that's doing a bad deal. That is very true. It's uh, I started the book with culture because I believe that culture is key. Um, and so to your point, one thing that I find is that we start the discussions without too much financial data, usually without any financial data, high level, how much revenue do you do? Uh, and what type of practice do you have? But then I go to a meeting one-on-one -on -one with the person. So I just had one of those this week where I had a meeting uh, with an accounting firm in one of our markets. And all I know is how many employees they have and where they're located and what you can find out on the website and about how much revenue they do. But I, so then from there, I go to a one-on-one -on -one meeting over lunch. I always make sure it's over lunch and it's you know one to two hours. And if I can't see having lunch again with that person, then there's no way we're going to do a transaction because they're clearly not the type of person that would fit at our firm. And if they're not, then the people behind them probably aren't either. Oh, that's great. So, so yeah, you know, it's interesting because for so long, this kind of discussion about cultural fit and that kind of stuff was so overlooked. And now there's, it's actually a big topic, right? In, in the M&A space and even in the general entrepreneurial business space on how important culture is. There's a lot of books out there. People speak on it. Um, but even with that, frankly, I think uh, too often people overlook it. So let's delve into that a little bit more, right? So, you know, the first thing you're doing is you're sitting down with a particular principal of principles at lunch. And, you know, that much more for me, at least initially, is just really more of a personality, you know, conversation. Who are they, right? But then it gets expanded to the culture of an organization. Uh, so can you talk a little bit more about how you sort of determine that and make sure it's a fit? Yeah. So I will start typically in those situations. Um, and Corey and I both come from a similar background, being an entrepreneur's organization. And I find that I try to be the one who goes first. And so I try to be transparent. I try to be upfront. And I try to experience share on our firm. And so I'll talk about revenue. I'll talk about our partnership agreement. I'll talk about uh, you know where we're headed, the growth potential, why we're interested in this firm, what we see as a potential fit. And so I may do the first 10 or 15 minutes of talking, you know, obviously not straight, but just to share ideas so that they feel comfortable. 
when it's their turn to share and I ask a couple of questions, uh, you know, and I'm not asking for how much money they make. I'm asking for like, oh, do you do uh, estate tax planning or do you do, you know, wh- where do you get your referrals from or how much is your client base or how much have you been growing or whatever? What are your pain points? If their answers are very short one word answers, they're not a fit. I mean, I've already determined, forget it. They're, we are a very open culture. We have a firm wide meeting every uh, four months at our firm and we share firm financials. We share the direction of the firm. It's a one hour call with the leadership team sharing with all 75 or 80 of us on a Zoom call. And so if, if they're going to be, uh, you know, sort of playing it close to the vest in a meeting after I've just shared a whole bunch of stuff, then it tells me a lot about the type of person they are and the type of firm they run. Yeah, that, 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 that's crucial. And, and listen, there are so many aspects of that, right? I mean, yeah, open, uh, are you open book or are you, uh, are you not? Are you open door or are you not? How do you resolve conflict? What's, uh, you know, is, is, it, uh, is it an eat what you kill uh, kind of firm or is it a partnership firm where there are other factors taken into account on how, you know, you split up the money? I mean, I, we can go on and on, right? There are a lot of factors here, right? Yes. Yeah. And, and then as we get past that, and I feel like they're a little bit comfortable and okay, there, there is some potential here in those discussions, then it's to your point, what you just said, then you start asking questions about how they run their business. Do they run it as an open door? Do they, you know, there are still firms who require that everybody do their work in the office from 8am till 6pm and you can't leave. And, and, you know, that's just not who we are. Right. As, Corey, as Corey read my introduction, I'm on the global board of directors for entrepreneurs organization, which means I travel eight to 12 weeks a year. I am still working. I promise you that I'm still working when I'm traveling. It just means that I might be doing it from, you know, my last stop was uh, Amsterdam in the Netherlands. I had to be there two weeks ago. I'm still working. It just, but there are firms who just don't believe in that. And uh, so that wouldn't be a fit as an example or somebody who has (laughs) ran into a firm two months ago who still has mandatory Saturdays from eight to four. Like you literally have to be there eight to four in today's. Is it the, is it the (laughs) eighties? I don't know. I don't know how they can recruit for an example. I don't know how they can recruit Gen X or millennials because I mean, these people have children every activity is on a Saturday. So you're telling me they can't go to their kids activity because it's mandatory Saturdays from January through April. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. I thought, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting. So John, there's, there's so much we could talk about and, you know, I could have you back another 10 times because there's a million aspects of this you understand. Uh, but I just have a couple of more questions. So uh, one is, uh, obviously when you moved into the investment banking side, that's a different business. You know, you, I mean, you were familiar with it from, your own experience and from, you know, the accounting and firm, and I'm sure you dealt with many investment banking firms uh, there. But listen, we all know as entrepreneurs, any new business we start, no matter what we think from the outside and what we think we know and we don't know, we find out and learn a lot of stuff. Uh, uh, so what have you learned, you know, what has been the interesting lessons about, um, you know, even about M&A, which you were so involved in, in you know, in a different way uh, from looking at it and actually being involved in it as an investment banker these days as well. Yes. So boy, the lessons we, we could learn on that. I could do a whole probably two hour podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, so give it, give us one or two big ones and then maybe, maybe we'll have you back to delve in. <laughs> yeah. So, so one of them, one of them for sure is making sure that you're representing somebody who's really committed to selling or buying. And yeah. so, yeah they may be, yeah, I'm interested in selling and they sign an engagement letter and you take them to market and nothing is what they want, even though you've already told them up front what you think it's worth, et cetera. Um, but they're not really committed. They're sort of like just checking out the market. So that one, uh, I can tell you, we've changed our, 
agreement letters, engagement letters to, to have very specific language that puts the offer price as an example in the engagement letter. And it says, if we get letters of intent that satisfy within 10% this price uh, and you don't accept it, then you still owe us our fee because we've, we've done our job. Your job is to sell when we get you the right buyer. Your job is to actually sell. Our job is to find the buyer. <laughs> so, so that's one big lesson. The other big lesson is um, we've started doing a lot of the clients that we have in that business come from our accounting firm. So that's really easy. We can vouch for those clients. There's people that I would do business with on the accounting side that I would never do business on the M&A side because it's a very emotional process to sell your baby, right? And to sell your business. And I'm sure you've seen it a hundred times. The other, but the clients that aren't, the clients that are coming from outside of our accounting firm, we now have implemented, I'll say like an ethics check. We do a little bit of a background check, again, learning by experience because we have gotten to the closing table with a couple of clients uh, on the M&A business that are not accounting firm clients. Everything seemed on the up and up, but then at the end, they try to stiff us for our fee. And it's, you know, our fees are a very small number up front. You know, it could be a five or $10,000 retainer. And then it's all on the backside. It could be an 8% success fee on a, you know, let's say a $3 million transaction or a $5 million transaction. And, and, uh, and they're trying to, wiggle out of it at the closing table. And um, so, so now we're, we're doing a little bit more ethical background checks on, on some of our, uh, you know, opportunities that don't come from the accounting firm. Got it. Got it. So John, I, I, before I ask the last question that I want to ask you, uh, just give us a, listen, I'm, you are a wealth of information, unbelievable experience in this area. And I'm sure that our uh, listeners are going to want to know more uh, about all the things that you do. So uh, what's the best place for Fueling Deals podcast listeners to to find you, to look up information on you? And then also uh, definitely say a little bit uh, about your great book. Yeah. So um, email me at John Bly, B-L-Y, at lbahs.com. Website is lbahs.com. And then cracking the code. Um, I wrote it specifically to help entrepreneurs be able to buy a business. There's a lot of stuff out there on sell side and how to exit business, how to build it to exit, stuff like that. But when I wrote the book about six years ago, there wasn't anything out there on how to buy a small to mid-sized business. And so this is a, you know, it's a three-hour read on how to, you know, look at culture, how to look at diligence and those sorts of things. And, uh, and I, I think it's something that people can implement. Yeah. So listen, definitely, uh, you know, get to know John a little more, check out his stuff, read the book. The book is great. I've, I, I've read it. Uh, and, you know, I, and listen, I'm a deal guy. Uh, so uh, I could be uh, easily hypocritical of stuff because I know what I'm talking about. And, and, and the book's a, not only a phenomenal read, but, you know, just a real roadmap on, uh, on how to do that. So uh, I definitely recommend it. Um, so, John, my final question for you is, uh, as actually, you know, because we know each other, uh, you know, authenticity is a super important value to me. Uh, there's a reason my book is called Authentic Negotiating. And for me, authenticity is not about external morals or even integrity, which obviously is important of itself, but it's more about alignment with, you know, being self-aware and being aligned with your values and your inner truth. And, you know, we see in the entrepreneurial world, so many people who even build companies uh, and they have this trend, they're being driven by all this stuff. And then they're not happy, right? You know, they, they, you know, they haven't really, they're being driven by other people's expectations or by ego. Uh, and it comes up in deals as well. You know, uh, people do deals for the wrong reasons. Yeah. So I'm, uh, I'm wondering, uh, you know, how is it that you, you know, what are your thoughts on that? And how is it that you uh, make 
authentic business decisions in your own business, whether it's, you know, generally or in terms of the deals you do? That's a good question. And we definitely see times when people make decisions for the wrong reasons and it's not within their core, if you will. Um, you know, for me, I've always been and, and have been, I think I was raised this way. So it's not something I've learned. I don't think, I think it really just came from my parents. I've always tried to do the right thing, not for me, but for all the people around me. So when I'm making decisions at the firm, uh, you know, I'm CEO, but I have partners now, although I'm the only founder and I'm not, I never make decisions based on what's best for me. I make decisions based on what's best for the partners as a whole and then our team. Right. And so internal decisions are always based on that, whether that's, you know, a deal or whether it's, you know, future growth opportunities or whatever. It's the same when we're dealing with clients. I always look at it and say, you know, we could get paid on this, but that wouldn't be the right way to do it. Uh, the client doesn't have to pay us to do this as an example. I mean, we can, we can provide this advice, you know, with, with no extra charge. I mean, for me, it's about always doing the right thing. If I do the right thing repeatedly, um, I have found that it, it, it tends to just pay itself back and people think of you as an ethical business leader. And to me, um, you know, reputation, especially in the space that we're in is, is pretty critical. Yeah. And, and listen, knowing you, I know that that is authentic to you because it aligns with your, you know, like you're not doing that as a tactic because it'll help you grow your business. You're doing no. it because it's aligned with who you are. You couldn't operate any other way. That's right. No, I just couldn't. I, I really, I couldn't operate any other way. And we've had some, some, uh, you know, partners over the years who have left the firm and I've always, I've always treated it to, uh, overly fair to them, if that makes sense. I mean, that's always been my, my take is look, what do you need to get started on your own or what, you know, if you're looking to, you're not happy here or whatever, that's just who I am. I look, there's plenty of money to be made and there's plenty of years to continue to do this. I don't need enemies in my life. I love it. Listen, John, thank you so much for being on the show. You've provided a lot of value to our listeners. Thanks, Corey. Uh, looking forward to seeing you again soon. And thank you, Fueling Deals listeners, for tuning in. Remember, there's only one difference between companies that grow inorganically and those that don't. And it's unrelated to size, amount of capital, or any other factor, other than that the owners and executives of companies that do deals make a decision to do deals. And then they take action. It's time to refuel. So until next week, Corey Kupfer signing out. Thank you again for tuning in. Be sure to leave Fueling Deals a rating and review on iTunes and Google. Check out all our episodes at FuelingDeals.com to find out more resources to accelerate your business growth.